0: Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page and free. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we'll be doing a deep dive on one of our favorite bands, Led Zeppelin. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, let's review some new music
1: from Rosalia and Wet Leg.
2: (laughs) Muffin Buttered. Would you like us to a sunset?
0: Oh yeah, Mr. Cott, that is a little bit of Chase Longe. (laughs) We now know how to say it correctly, thanks to Wet Leg, a single that absolutely went viral last year, and, it's obligatory to say, uh, quoted Mean Girls in the lyrics. Now we have their debut album in full, self-titled Wet Leg. Who is this group Rianne Teasdale and Hester Chambers, both guitarists and vocalists, uh, came together on the Isle of Wight. They had both uh, bounced around in uh, various other indie bands uh, on the scene there, such as it is, and decided uh, in the midst of the COVID 19 lockdowns to uh, launch this project together. And as they said in numerous interviews, to have fun. <laughs> These were uh, awful times for everyone, uh, and they just decided to really try to have um, the most laughs that they possibly could, and humor is a big part of this band, and to kind of synthesize All of their uh, indie rock ideals and inspirations. Um, What are we getting on this album? Much anticipated. Let's play a track and we will come back and give our uh, reviews. Oh, I should add, another inspiration in them forming, well, there were two others that are worth mentioning. One, they saw Idols uh, in a concert on the Isle of Wight before the world shut down, and two, they were blown away by Megan the Stallion and Cardi B's WAP. You put together Idols and WAP. Wow, what are you going to come out with? Wet Leg. Here is a song from the self-titled Wet Leg. It is called Your Mom, You Are Mom by Wet Leg.
2: Oh,
1: That is your mom from Wet Leg, the debut album, self-titled, much anticipated since those uh, a couple of those singles came out last year. One of them made my year-end mixtape. I'm going if this the first two songs are this good from this brand new band, (laughs) what is this album going to sound like? And uh, I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table. It lives up to expectations. You know, I was excited about this record. I'm really happy it's here. Can, can I trump you before you continue?
0: <laughs> it is as if... Uh, if, if Wet Leg didn't exist, it would have been like a decade ago with Savages. That's the way I feel. This band was invented for me.
1: Well, you know, it's like uh, we already had a great band out of England last year, Dry Cleaning, make its debut. Yes. And I'm thinking, OK, what, what can top that? Well, Wet Leg, you know, yeah. you know, they're going toe to toe. These may be the two band, best bands in England. You know, let's put uh, idols up there as well. But you know, you think Taylor Swift was rough on her exes? You got to get a load of this record. I mean, your mom when you're getting blazed, spooning mayonnaise. Yeah, I know it's time to go. I mean, you know they're just laying into these
0: layabout. Boyfriends, exes that they've had. And well, well it, they're 28 and 29. Yeah. So they've done some living and they're not going to put up with anything anymore. A- at one point they ask, what makes you think you're good enough to think about me when you're touching yourself? What makes
2: you think you're good enough to think
1: Young women uh, navigating adulthood and realizing very quickly, as we all do, that boys grow up a lot slower than girls <laughs> in terms of just maturity and emotional abilities, That's and one way et cetera. To put it. I mean, it's just—it's so funny. Uh, they're brutal. They're sarcastic. Uh, but there's just an incredibly laugh-out-loud funny line in almost every song. The way they put it—put uh, these guys down and you know i'm not gonna at all say that it's a hostile record it's it's just a great rock and roll record i mean to my mind the interplay between the voice that deadpan vocal style and chambers on guitar teesdale's vo- vocals chambers on guitar lead guitar yeah. she's um, a very powerful volatile guitar player the dynamics in the song uh, coming out of that guitar interplay but also the way those two voices are interacting with each other um, you know, the one, the one line in that Chez Solange song, you know, excuse me, what? They're answering each other. And there's yeah, this interplay, know, this playful <laughs> interplay. You can tell these two women are having a ball, you know, doing this.
2: Is your mother worried? Would you like us to assign someone to worry your mother? Excuse me, what? Excuse me,
1: what? So that sense of fun... Playfulness comes across with the violence in that guitar sound, as well as the you know incredibly inventive attitude about you know dealing with immature boys. I, yeah, I think it's fun. a wonderful record.
0: Well, well, that song we just bounced in with. Your mum, uh, you know, it opens with, it starts with this. I think about what you've become, uh, and I feel sorry for your mom. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the music, because it's so easy to just get wrapped up in the lyrics. Um, you know, I hear Elastica, I hear Breeders, I hear Dry Cleaning... Um, I hear uh, all of these kind of indie uh, guitar things happening with a danceable sensibility, because they keep saying in every interview, as long as you're having fun, then everything will be all right. Uh, But at one point on the record, they sing in the midst of the pandemic, and we were all there. At least we're all gonna die. (laughs) I was like, oh man. Twenty-eight and twenty-nine. I think they have some perspective, and uh, you know they're just so smart and sophisticated. The the accomplishment of this debut, um, you know, really belies what a young band they are. You know, a year or so, right? And and you know, I think of that that wonderful duo that led Elastica. Uh, that's what uh, uh, Teasdale and. And Chambers remind me of. I, I, this is like, I hate to sound like you. You're always the one that on uh, January 3rd says this might be the album of the year, but this, man, this is going to be a hell of a year if we have an album better than the Wet Leg Self Titled debut.
2: Rosa, sin That's a
1: little bit of Chicken Teriyaki, the playfully titled (laughs) song from the new Rosalia record, Moto Mami. Uh, Rosalia is uh, a Spanish singer-songwriter, and uh, in case you've been sleeping under a rock for the last few years, you may uh, may not know that she has become a new Latin superstar, sort of in the J Balvin category of crossover in the, uh, the pop music realm. Uh, the, the breakthrough record for her was El Mal Carrer in 2018, won the Latin Grammy Award for Album of the Year. Uh, she uh, made her name by taking traditional elements, the flamenco music that she mm-hmm. grew up with in Spain and modernizing it, electronic take on flamenco. Uh, she made this centuries-old musical style feel fresh and futuristic. I mean, it's it was uh, just got rave reviews everywhere. And, you know, comparisons to artists like Bjork and M.I.A. and Kate Bush started pouring out. Mm-hmm. You know, it was only a matter of time before she got even bigger. What's she going to do next? Well, we've got that record now, Motomami. Uh, this is a, a loose concept album. It's kind of a, she said, it's it's painting... a a self portrait of herself and it's divided into two parts the moto mommy the one one side and the moto part is the divine experimental side of, <laughs> of her personality and the mommy side is the is the more confessional vulnerable part so we're going to assess how uh, well she pulled that off in a second but uh, let's hear one of the tracks from the record first it's called diablo from rosalia's new record moto mommy on sound of
2: ¡Que yo cambie!
0: Diablo by Rosalia from her third album, the one the world has been waiting for, Moto Mami you know Greg I love that track uh, I love chicken teriyaki uh, some of the mommy side <laughs> I don't love quite as much including uh la fama uh, where she's working with the weekend uh, you know us man in the Drake mold in the weekend mode we got somebody else complaining about how hard it is to be famous <laughs> But for the most part, um, Rosalia is moving so quick and with such energy and with such uh, just globe trotting uh, enthusiasm for music in general mm-hmm. and bringing those sounds back to what she grew up with that um, it's infectious you know and this album carries you along this is what a modern pop record should be minus the fact that she doesn't always have a lot to say beyond uh, those tired difficulties of uh, of being famous you know don't you wish we could be famous just for like one day wasn't that a song by David Bowie? Can we be famous just for one day, so we could see how hard we it is? Heroes, maybe you know. we'd have more empathy for all these artists struggling with the burdens of paparazzi and money. Well, you
1: know, I'm I'm not as, as focused on that as you are. I am I'm more impressed by the ambition of it musically. You know, I think um, I when I listened to her music, I I remember listening to the 2018 record and thinking. This is just a great pop record. I mean, yeah. it's it's dynamic. It's the the arrangements are, are radical, and yet yet at the same time rooted in melody and 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 incredibly danceable. Um, I think in a lot of ways, when I think of about innovators in 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 the Latin uh, music realm, I think about a band like Cafe Tacuba mm. and what they did for Rock and Espanol in the nineties, basically redefined it completely for the next generation of artists to follow. Yeah, and now we see La Rosalia. Uh, doing the same thing for reggaeton and and dance music, the, mm-hmm. the dance culture. Um, she's she's in, reinventing it in many ways, in her own image. So I think just the fact that she's so willing to experiment with uh, tradition and also embracing uh, futurism and electro pop um, in a really radical way. I mean, there's there's elements of industrial music in this in this oh, uh, yeah. record.
2: I can't, I'm
1: there's the very avant garde takes on the way she's using her vocals. Uh, there's elements of jazz, you know, and she's also rooted in reggaeton. Uh, there's a track on there that, that plays off of Dembo, which is a re- reggae uh, dance style that, be- that came uh, to the fore in the early 90s, uh, La Combi Versace. <laughs>
2: Uh,
1: so she's experimenting with these different dance styles across multiple continents and sort of making them her own so in a you're, really you're kind of, uh,
0: you know, uh, very uh, personal style. You're saying I'm asking too much to also want lyrics as brilliant as the music.
1: Well, you know, maybe maybe the lyrics will catch up at one point with wh- where she is musically. But I just think she's a she's an incredibly inventive artist, and I think you I don't agree. even have to I know agree. what she's
0: talking about to love this record. I, it's true, and it is. Uh, she does sing in Spanish uh, in, in in parts of it. Uh, uh, no, don't don't get me wrong. I love Rosalia. This is a burst of sunshine as winter still lingers in this yeah. year that will not end.
1: So that's what we thought of the debut from uh, Wet Leg and the latest from Rosalia, and now we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on those records? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, a conversation about the music and legacy of Led Zeppelin. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot. He's Jim Dirigatis. This week, we're doing a deep dive on one of our favorite bands ever, Led Zeppelin. We'll be talking about the great music, the bombast, and, of course, the unconscionable behavior of Zeppelin's members and inner circle. And in addition to our perspectives, we're chatting with a relatively new expert on the band.
0: We want to welcome to the show Bob Spitz, the author of Led Zeppelin, the biography, what else needs to be said other than uh, it's a hefty tome. Bob, welcome to Sound Opinions.
3: It's great to be here. Thanks very much.
0: Let's start at the beginning. Many reviewers are saying, why did the world need another Led Zeppelin biography? You actually have confessed, uh, you didn't own Led Zeppelin albums until you decided to take on this story. Um, What drove you as a an acclaimed biographer not only of of rock superstars the beatles book but you know uh ronald reagan and, and yeah. julia child what yeah. what made you say there's a story that hasn't been told fully about led zeppelin
3: well first of all you know i wasn't aware of led zeppelin's legacy i had been on the road with bruce springsteen the whole time that they were uh that they were popular and our paths didn't cross so if you would ask me at the beginning of this to name a couple led zeppelin songs i might have been able to name you know whole lot of love and stairway to heaven but that was about it and so when my my editor asked me to consider undertaking this i went and i read you know a, a dozen books that were at the top of the list for for zepp and i thought that they you know it's the same thing you encounter in in a lot of rock and roll uh, genres There, It's hagiography written by fanboys or guys who were beat, you know, journalists for Melody Maker and and knew these guys and had been paid uh, to go on tour with them. And I thought, you know, this is bogus. This is a band that has sold more albums than anyone but the Beatles. And if that is what is serving as their legacy, then somebody needed to step in here and really... Write the the story. You know, I had seen that Hammer of the Gods was kind of the book that everybody was turning to. And I read that and I thought, wow, you know, if you call that even-handed journalism, we're all in trouble here. So I, I thought to start at the beginning, to let the story fill me up as somebody who knew nothing about this band and to look at them in an objective way. I spent five years listening to their to their music and talking to people like Jeff Beck and Carmine Apiece so that they could really fill me in on what was happening musically with the band.
1: Did you feel that any of those books hit the mark? It's 100 plus books on Led Zeppelin now, right? And I I assume you read a good portion of them, if not all of them.
3: I ordered all of them and looked through all of them, yeah.
1: What were they not telling that your research dug up that you were able to sort of say, say, I filled in this gap uh, in in our knowledge of Led Zeppelin?
3: Well, all of Jimmy's younger years, discovering the music. You know, I, I was in touch with his next door neighbor, Dave Williams who introduced Jimmy to the blues and sat with him every day while they discovered new music and talked about rock and roll and practically invented the fuzz bass with Roger Mayer. Uh, I went to find Roger who went on to, you know, revolutionize guitar sound. That was the remarkable thing. I found that Glenn, uh, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, they all lived within five minutes of each other, grew up that way and tried to piece together the whole uh, resurgence of uh, electric blues in the UK after World War II. So I went back to the beginning. I talked to the Yardbirds and the people involved there and tried to put everything in a cultural context for a reader who may have enjoyed banging their head Led Zeppelin music, but knew nothing about where this music came from. And so that was the start of something I felt that I contributed to Zepp's legacy.
1: You had a tough job, too, because the band had a contentious uh, relationship with the press all along. Uh, yes. Basically, the, as you detail in your book, the only people who really got interviews were the people who were completely bought and paid for by, by Led Zeppelin's publicity machine, such as it was. And, and they don't do interviews. And when they do interviews, they're very they're not easy to talk to necessarily. Uh, And you did make that request, right? And got turned down and which I I would imagine for a biographer, that's got to be the worst news
3: you could ever possibly hear. When I did make the request, they all agreed to talk to me. Uh, But it happened about two months before Me Too hit. And the minute that Me Too hit, they pulled all of the uh, accessibility that I had to the other members of the band. Their lawyers told me that they're not going to talk to you, they're not going to talk to anybody, because of, especially at the height of Me Too, when everything was just bursting wide open.
0: You know, um, you're talking to a lifelong Led Zeppelin fan. I learned to play drums by playing along uh, House of the Holy in my in my headphones. I still can't get that intro to rock and roll, which, you know, bon- Bonzo stole from Little Richard. I got the three rings, Ballantine Ale symbol, Bonzo symbol on my bass drum foot. I came away from this extensively reported book, uh, more conflicted than ever by the central question of our time as critics. Uh, Greg and I have have spoken about this. We continue to talk about it, to think about it, separating the art and the artist. I came away, despite having read Hammer of the Gods and every other Zeppelin book, uh, I've got a dozen of them on my shelf that I kept, liking them as people, much less being disgusted by much of the behavior. But I still love the music. Well, I've of course, always been a critic. You know, squeeze the lemon till the juice runs down. But <laughs> it's just a bad line. Mm-hmm. It was a bad line in in the late '60s. It's a bad line today. On the other hand, man, when the drums come in on Stairway to Heaven, okay. You know, you lay out the facts. There is some coloring where you you know every time Laurie Maddox's name is mentioned, you remind us 14-year-old girlfriend Laurie Maddox. Where do we stand? Where do you stand? Because Page was a world-class jerk, you know, and and several times you you tell us horrifying tales of behavior, more factually related than Hammer of the Gods, the the infamous sand shark incident, Bonham assaulting a stewardess on the starship. And, you know, your refrain, which comes from Page's idiotic uh, worship of Crowley, do what thou wilt, right? Now, I will remind you, Crowley perverted do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. It came from the Wiccan creed, Dorothy Reed, which was do what thou wilt is the whole of the law, so long as ye shall harm none. Right. Led Zeppelin left a trail of bodies in its wake. They didn't harm none.
3: When I started out, uh, my wife had to very carefully sit me down and say, you cannot call those people that were with Jimmy young women they are girls don't ever refer to them as young women they were adolescents and I have to tell you that uh, yes Lori was 14 years old uh, but there were accounts I heard of 12 year olds and 11 year olds in one case they were spelled out to me by the women now women in no uncertain terms And I I had to leave some of those stories out of the book because I found that it was taking over the book. I mean, I had to be a little more even handed about it. I was torn all the way through this because unlike you, I wasn't a a fan and I was becoming a fan uh, by listening to the music, by really digging into it. And as a musician myself, I'm feeling that tear of how can I listen in a certain way when I'm reading these horrific stories and and having women tell me firsthand stories, things that I couldn't put in the book. Yeah, it's tough. I I don't know where you draw the line. Nevertheless, I feel that these guys have to, they have to be responsible for their behavior. And so if they're not being held responsible by the law, maybe my book is one step in the way of holding their feet to the fire by retelling some of these stories in more graphic detail so that people can understand that, you know, yes, there is that music that we love, but remember who these guys are at heart. And and so you, as a listener, as a young kid, you have to absorb all of this when you listen to Led Zeppelin. At least that's that's my story and I'm sticking to it.
1: Led Zeppelin certainly was one of the most notorious, if not the most notorious example of the hedonism that just completely, and we were young and we were high and that excuse no longer plays where where absolutely Nobody, nobody is buying that anymore as an excuse. But it seemed to be so ubiquitous in the 60s and 70s as a badge of rock and roll outlaw Behavior, You know, where the marauders going, you know, marching up and down the pillaging, pillaging and raping, literally, as we're as we're marching through the country.
0: Well, and the David Bowie circle of groupies was intersecting yeah. with the and Bowie gets a pass.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know,
0: they all get a pass. The Stones, all of them. Michael you know?
3: DeBar told me stories of, you know, managers during that time in L.A. with huge, you know, resources of cocaine. Uh, using it to, um, to control the whole action that was going on. I I couldn't name them because some of those guys were still alive and I couldn't get a second, um, a second source to go on for me. So uh, it's hard to to do that, but it, it was a, it was a, a really dicey period in rock and roll. It really is. The music was better than ever, but the behavior was worse than ever.
1: Well, I think your book does a pretty good job of Getting at the innovation that was within the music, I mean there was so much groundbreaking stuff that a Page was doing not only as a guitar player but as a producer. And I'm really glad you highlighted that because the guy's genius for arrangement and stuff was incredible. John Paul Jones's crucial role in that as well, Bonham's brilliance as a drummer, Plant's innovation as a vocalist. These were all, you come across that stuff, the musical side is, is really astonishing. But then you have two certified monsters lurking within the inner circle of the Zeppelin between Bonham and his behavior and Peter Grant. You know, I've read some stuff about Grant and you pretty much laid out in pretty direct detail. This guy, he was not a, not only was he not a nice man, he was a murderous uh,
3: dude. He He was a mobster. Yeah. He was a thug. But, you know, the the other side of the coin is, and this is where, you know, we're torn with everything, is that so many managers ripped off their bands. Peter Grant made sure those guys got every cent that they were entitled to. And he was one of the few managers, for better or worse, who was at every single gig that his band did. Now, yes, maybe he shouldn't have been there because his behavior was Absolutely atrocious, and he was a mobster. He was a thug. I believe I call, I refer to him as a villain throughout throughout the book, which was the U K term for somebody like this. So there again, as a biographer of a great musical band, I'm torn again. Not just with the the guys and their music, but the manager and. His fidelity to the band and yet his horrific behavior as a human being. And I'm also being held to my feet are being held to the fire because every single review that has come out about my book hasn't said anything about my writing or the music or the job that I've done. They're reviewing the behavior of the band. I can't get away from it. You know, it's really
0: tough. I mean, there's two sides to Peter Grant, right? In some ways, he was redressing the record companies chronically screwing over uh, their musicians and promoters and everybody else in the world, you know, for him. Which he saw firsthand by representing uh,
3: Little Richard and Chuck Berry and the guys who got screwed by uh, promoters all the time.
0: Yeah. he wasn't going to let that happen to his boys. Now, whether he needed, you know, guns and baseball bats to <laughs> enforce that, no. you know. When we return, we'll talk about the brilliant but volatile drummer of Led Zeppelin, John Bonham. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're
1: chatting with Led Zeppelin biographer Bob Spitz. Let's get back to the conversation.
0: Bonham, Bonham, it just breaks my heart. The rules for anybody, journalists, unwise enough, and we've spoken to Cameron Crowe, we've spoken to Jan Uhelski, we know what it was like to be on Starship. Uh, There were two rules. Never talk to anyone in the band unless they first talk to you. Number two, do not make eye contact of any kind with John Bonham ever. This is for your own safety. (laughs) It kills me, you know, having studied his drumming and uh, his brilliance and listened to what he accomplished, that basically you portray him and plant as two kids from the sticks Midlands, right? They grew up in the middle of nowhere. They were never going to make it. They weren't going to ever be cool. Plant becomes the golden god, and Bonham redefines the role of rock drumming, but every minute he's away from his wife and child, he is miserable. When he's miserable, he drinks. When he drinks, he becomes violent. And it's like, wow! How do we square the genius of his playing with the stories later in life when he's also taking heroin as well as being a horrible alcoholic? He would literally fall asleep at times on the drum set.
3: Somebody told me, and it's in the book, uh, that Bonham was a twelve-year-old boy in the bo- in the body of a twenty-five-year-old man, and he never grew up and out of that. I got tired of everybody who was on tour with the band and all the Led Zeppelin uh, personnel saying, but the guy was a teddy bear, you know? I didn't want to hear that he was a teddy bear. He could be nice at times, but he hurt people. Uh, and then again, when I put those headphones on and with how Carmine sat with me and explained exactly what Bonham was doing with his feet and with his hands... I came to believe that he was the best musician in the band. I mean, when you put those cans on and listen to what he's doing as a musician, it's impossible for me to sometimes follow the timing that he's doing. I don't know how he played triplets with his feet. But aside from all of that, uh, I could never get past the fact that anytime he veered into the story, there was going to be trouble because he, he didn't understand reality and he was a big boy and he hurt people and that kind of Tore at me all through the writing of the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, he had no control of his behavior when he drank, and he drank all the time. Danny Goldberg surfaces as their publicist, junior publicist, right? The old-school Hollywood guy, Lee Salters, uh, says, I don't know what to do with these guys. Danny Goldberg takes him on. Becomes huge in the music business. I bring him up because Danny Goldberg is overseeing the career of Nirvana 25 years later. Kurt Cobain is killing himself with heroin, nobody does anything. You know, John Bonham is killing himself with heroin and booze. Jimmy Page is killing himself with heroin nobody does anything. <laughs> uh, you know, I know the 70s, uh, 75, 79 is different than 2022. But even if it's only for self-preservation, I don't want to derail the gravy train and have these people die. I'll have no more band, which is exactly what happened with Zeppelin. When bon- Bonham dies, you would just think somebody at some point would have stepped forward. But, but you know, nobody did with Nirvana either. These guys were a law unto themselves. In fact, I, I used that phrase in the book a few times.
3: And uh, they made it clear that uh, you do not want to interfere in anything they're doing. You know, it, it was the same. You brought up the uh, the mention at the beginning of, of our discussion of about how they dealt with the press. I think it was one of the things that absolutely destroyed them, the fact that they treat, they suspected the press, they didn't treat the press well, that you know, they always worried that they couldn't understand how the Stones were getting so much publicity and sold one third of the amount of albums that they sold. And it's because these guys never put themselves out. I've been on the road with Keith Richards. And if you walk down the street with Keith, and a fan comes up, Keith puts his arm around the fan. He takes a, a selfie with him. He takes his skull ring off and puts it on the kids. And if you would try doing that with Jimmy Page, you would have had your arm broken. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the thugs around him. Yeah. Right. Or, yes, thugs. absolutely. You know, and, and because of all of that, and because of the fact that they wouldn't take advice for their health from anybody. I say that Led Zeppelin was their own worst enemy. They really were. They screwed themselves so many times by not listening to voices of reason. They could have been embraced in such a bigger way by all of us old farts from the 60s who didn't want to accept Led Zeppelin. If they had embraced the press, if they had gone out of their way to be part of the rock and roll community, they would have been even bigger than they were.
0: Yeah, but don't you think, on the flip side, don't you think it was a brilliant strategy in a way? We see a generational divide. You know, John Mendelsohn famously tears them to shreds several times in a row in right. uh, Rolling Stone. Right, Mendelssohn's godheads were the Kinks. Right, But the Kinks were another generation. Even though, you know, hey, uh, Jones and and were part of that studio crowd that was making kinks records right they, they were the same age but they were a new generation and you know that thing about the press i mean now there's few working music critics to the extent that any of us were, mm. you know, who don't hold Zeppelin in as high a regard as the Stones and the Beatles. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I just don't understand why it bothered them in 1975. They're selling more. They're selling out. They're, they're breaking every record can be broken in live performance. They're breaking records with selling the records and the crowd of younger kids that love them, love them devoutly. Who cares what John Mendelssohn thought?
3: Yeah, right. And they're still selling records and and yet they're still being aloof. Jimmy is such an aloof guy. I mean, really. These guys weren't friends with each other. Yeah, they really weren't. I couldn't find any example in in all the research that I did where they ever went out and shared a meal together. When I wrote the Beatles book, What astounded me more about the Beatles was when they went anywhere, when they toured anywhere, they didn't take suites like Led Zeppelin. They took one hotel suite and they all lived with each other because they loved each other. They were mates. Even at the end, when they were suing each other over the end of Apple, Ringo would take a vacation with Paul. George and John would go out together. John would knock on Paul's door to help him finish a song. I mean, Led Zeppelin, they they were not interactive at all.
0: Right, you've talked to Paige, right? Yeah. You know, I've done some some in-depth interviews with John Paul Jones, and we've had Robert Plant on the show. Plant, it seems, was clueless and young <laughs> and almost, you know, regrets, almost regrets his behavior then. Jones, I think, has fascinating perspective because he was right there. But he stepped away when the going got ugly. Well, that was
1: his line. And you know, he's the one guy that always comes away from a Led Zeppelin telling John Paul was not part of this this mess that was going on in their private lives, you know. He he seemed to be more disciplined. Look,
3: you know, if you read my account of the the whole shark and mud shark and he was there, yeah. He was peeping through the door, you know. I mean, he was he was part of it. But to a much lesser extent, I mean, on the road. He wasn't involved in that whole scene at all. So he was a more stable, more down-to-earth guy, even from the start.
1: You know, Page needed a guy like that at his side to sort of, you know, help flesh out. You know, musically, they were were genius in, in a lot of ways. I do want to ask a musical question. Sure, Um, John Bryan, who was a great producer, done a lot of those Paul Thomas Anderson soundtracks. I'm sure you're familiar with the name. He's a L.A. Studio And and a really smart guy um, and a a great song craftsman. And he says to me years ago in an interview, I I asked him about, you know, what, what makes a great song? And he used Led Zeppelin as an example of a band that did not write, quote unquote, great songs. Absolutely. What they did was great performance pieces that if performed by anyone else other than these four people, wouldn't be all that, all that special. Because these four guys were playing them, this is what made that music come alive. This is what gave it combustibility and its enduring value. But it was not a song-oriented band at all.
3: Jimmy couldn't write songs. Jimmy didn't write songs. Jimmy wrote riffs and he embroidered them together. And that's why almost all of their songs have rhythm changes, timing changes, because and, and some of them don't sound like they fit together. And that's because Jimmy had all these riffs that he would bring to it and just, he, he'd crochet them together into a song. I mean, Stairway to Heaven is a, is a prime example. And that made things much more difficult for Robert as well trying to fit lyrics to, to what Jimmy was writing. And, and I think that's, yes, you were right. They were fantastic performance pieces. These guys knew how to put it across. and And it wasn't just the music. It was the whole experience of, of having the, the, the sound course through your body uh, when you jacked it up to fourteen.
1: The other aspect that your book touches on, and in, in discussions with my friends about Led Zeppelin, which became more pronounced. You know, living in Chicago, I couldn't escape. I knew Willie Dixon, and boy, he's got a few things to say about Led Zeppelin. You know, uh, eventually got his royalty money, but he had to fight for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole idea of lifting these folk and blues standards, you know, that were part of the lexicon, and you knew these guys were pouring over these records. They adored them. Page loved them, and at the same time, just sort of taking them and, you know, hey, we wrote this new song, and oh, it just happens to sound a lot based on, a, you know, an old blues standard, but it's, you know, it, it be, it's become our thing because of what we do to it. Obviously, that hasn't held up really well in the decade since of musicians getting ripped off, and here was the band that worship these guys ripping them off. Like for example, when the Stones would do that, they would give the publishing to the to the people they were ripping off. Not the case with this with Led Zeppelin.
3: Yeah, the whole rationale, I think, Jimmy's and and Robert's rationale was that, you know, these blues guys and traditional songs were handed down, and and so they felt that they had the right to take the blues songs that were handed down through time and put their own stamp on them. Unfortunately. They just put their name on the songwriting credits and and you can't do that. I mean, you just can't do it. They paid the price, but there were other instances where they just ripped guys off too. And yeah, it's it's hard to figure, you know, was it naivete? Did they think they were getting away with something? I'm not sure, you know, but you know, the way Jimmy screwed Glyn Johns out of a producer's credit on the first album makes me wonder if he just didn't feel, hey listen, those guys are old I'm going to rip them off and we'll see if we can get away with it. And you know Peter Grant could solve the thing with Glenn Johns and Glenn could walk away from it going I wash my hands of your our friendship. But these these old blues cats, they deserve their royalties and it caught up with Red set
0: When you said Jimmy thought about, I think this guy was a genius, instinctual musician. But I think he's an empty vessel. I don't think there's a there there. I mean, only an idiot could become so enamored of all this hocus pocus Alistair Crowley. And I say that as someone who's read deeply about Crowley, okay? You know, and all this other stuff, this guy, you know, he's just, I, the guy was a dope. Jimmy was an, was an only child. I'm not saying that only children have a, have a right to be. Uh, Not only a dope, but a raging egotist. You know, because Grant, as far as Grant was concerned, this was his band. The only one who mattered was Jimmy Page, and the only one who had to be pleased at every turn. Whatever Jimmy wants, Jimmy gets.
3: You know, I can say that when Mike Capell and I were managing Bruce Springsteen, we said the same thing. Whatever Bruce wants, Bruce gets. It's his band. Nobody else really matters but Bruce. But the truth but Bruce is it, an adult. <laughs> Bruce, Bruce, had, Bruce had a moral center and a real vision of self that was wonderful. And so that made our job very easy. Jimmy was an only child. His father called him boy to the day he died, never called him Jimmy. His mother, you know, thought he was a gift from God. And who knows? For an 11-year-old boy to sit in his room with just a guitar and Alistair Crowley books. you know that's his development in adolescence from the time he's 11 years old until the time he starts to play with Reddy Lewis and the Redcaps when he's 15. You know you have to wonder what kind of a, how that all wrapped up and, and had it had an influence on the, the man that Jimmy became. And I, I think we know.
0: Yeah, well, it's the same line as you, you said with Bonham. He was a six-year-old trapped in the body of a grown man. It takes us
3: back to how we started this conversation, and that is, you know, how do you separate everything? And then you hear that music, and that music just sends you into outer space.
1: You came into that book as a sort of a Led Zeppelin newbie. Then you spent five years with the music. What emerges as, for you, the Led Zeppelin
3: album or song that yeah, the quintessential, completely blew your mind? the
0: quintessential mind? track, Bob.
3: Oh, for me, it's cashmere. I mean, I, I just think that that cashmere is such a wonderful piece of music. It's Robert writing at his most poetic. It was something that really meant something to him. The track is gorgeous. <laughs> But then again, for somebody like me, you know, who, uh, who, who didn't know anything about Led Zeppelin, who didn't really care for their music when I first started, an album for me like Presence really sends me into outer space because it's the way music should be made. It was made fast. It was made in 12 days. It sounds like a garage band. It wasn't smoothed off over and over and over by Jimmy until the spontaneity was gone. For me, it's all their own presence, too. So I entered this knowing nothing about them, thinking they were just a heavy metal headbanging band. And I came away, you know, really admiring their musicianship and what they've left us with, that catalog of
0: songs that will last for another 50 years as well. So few groups are able to do that. We've been talking to Bob Spitz, author of Led Zeppelin, the biography, a heavy book. Listen, Greg, (laughs) heavy, (laughs) heavy book, a heavy book about a heavy band. (laughs) Thank you, Bob. My
3: pleasure. It was great talking to you guys. I've admired your work for a long time.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. That wraps up our discussion on Led Zeppelin. And as always, we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite song or memory of Zeppelin? Have revelations about their behavior soured you on the music? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we got on the show next week? Next week, Jim, very excited to have
1: two founding members of the great Devo on the show. Talk about the band's origins and their latest uh, push to get into the Rock Hall of Fame. And don't forget to check out our weekly bonus podcast, where this week Jim's going to pay tribute to Nick Cave's
0: collaborator, Anita Lane. Boy, that's a bounty of riches, Mr. Cott. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer Sol Delgadillo, and our intern Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Koch.